Hi, this is Jose Figueroa with an Approved Workman, where we are rightly dividing the word of truth. Welcome to another week of Bible study. I am so glad that you're here as we open up God's word one more time. Our current series is Come, Lord Jesus, a study of the book of Revelation. If you're new to this Bible teaching ministry, here is how you can learn more about our work. First, go to our website, www.anapprovedworkman.org. That's anapprovedworkman.org. On the website, you can learn more about the purpose of this ministry, our approach to Bible study, and also review our statement of faith. You can also listen to previous episodes of the current series on Revelation or any episodes from any of the previous series we have done. On the website, you can also subscribe to the podcast, which is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and now also on Amazon Music, as well as other podcast directories. You can also connect with me on social media. I'm on Instagram at Workman. On Pinterest, we have a page, pinterest.com slash Workman, And you can also find our Facebook page on Facebook, facebook.com slash Workman. 215. Finally, if you're watching the video version of this lesson, make sure you subscribe to our channels on YouTube and Rumble to ensure you will miss any upcoming episodes. Today, we're in lesson number 41 in the series, Come, Lord Jesus, from the book of Revelation. This lesson is titled, The Thousand Years, Part 1. Our focus passage is Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. So find your way in your Bible to that passage. In Revelation 20, the Apostle John witnesses the thousand-year reign, a final battle, and the great white throne judgment. Do you remember the end of the last millennium? Do you remember the Y2K crisis of 1999? Here is a summary provided by the Investopedia site. Y2K is a shorthand term for the year 2000. Y2K was commonly used to refer to a widespread computer programming shortcut that was expected to cause extensive havoc as the year changed from 1999 to 2000. Instead of allowing four digits for the year, many computer programs only allow two digits for example, 99 instead of 1999. As a result, there was immense panic that computers will be unable to operate at the turn of the millennium when the day descended from 99 to 00. The change was expected to bring down computer systems, infrastructures such as those for banking and power plants. While there was a widespread outcry about the potential implications of this change, not much happened. While there were a few minor issues, once January 1st, 2000 arrived, there were no massive malfunctions. Some people attribute the smooth transition to major efforts undertaken by businesses and government organizations to correct the Y2K bug in advance. Others say that the problem was overstated and wouldn't have caused significant problems regardless. End quote. That's very interesting. In 1999, I worked for a large IT company, and I had to be on call and in town for the month of December, just in case. In December, usually I travel for Christmas to see family. Not that year. I had to stay in town. I even carried a pager, a beeper, so to speak, so the company could get a hold of me very quickly. Thankfully, the second millennium of the Christian era had arrived and there were no major technology issues since we had time to prepare and address any issues. Also in 1999, uh, while I was attending a church in Austin, Texas, one of our Sunday school teachers, Bob Lumpkin, who's now with the Lord, provided us with a fantastic eight-week series appropriately called The Millennium is Coming. It was my first exposure to in-depth teaching on the book of Revelation. Bob's idea and intent was to help us understand the book and to live in a state of readiness as believers. 
And almost 25 years later, I hope I am doing the same for you. So the question is, how should we be preparing now for the next millennium? Stay tuned. In our previous episode, we concluded our study of Revelation 19, the return of the king. In Revelation 19, John witnessed the wedding of the Lamb and his victory over Antichrist. The primary focus of Revelation 19 is on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This means his physical, visible return to this earth to complete the work of restoration. Jesus made a promise to his people. And this is the moment in which that promise is fulfilled. From the moment Jesus ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives, this is the moment that the church, his bride, has been waiting for for over 2,000 years. Jesus is coming back to judge and to rule. And we look at those two major end times events in that chapter. First, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then Armageddon. We devoted two lessons to the study of Revelation 19, so as a matter of review, let's look at the principles we learned from our study of that chapter. First, we look at the worship of the king, verses 1 through 6. Our principle from that section, the king's people offer their lives as a living act of worship until his return. The king's people offer their lives as a living act of worship until his return. What kind of living sacrifice are you offering to the king today? Then we went from the worship of the king to the wedding of the king, verses 7 through 10 in Revelation 19. Our principle, the king's people make themselves ready for his return. The king's people make themselves ready for his return. How are you preparing yourself for the great marriage supper of the Lamb? So after looking at the worship of the king, another great worship concert in heaven, and celebrating the marriage supper of the Lamb, we moved on to the war of the king, verses 11 to 21. That's the description of the battle of Armageddon. Our principle, when the king returns, his enemies will suffer his full wrath. When the king returns, his enemies will suffer his full wrath. Our application, how certain are you that you will be on the right side on the day of the great final battle of history? We should always remember that Jesus Christ, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, will return to reunite with his people and to rule the nations. The second coming of Jesus Christ is as certain to occur as his first coming. That's as good as a guarantee as you can get. Make no mistake about it. If you have not received him as your Lord and Savior, you still have time today. We're still in the age of grace. Today is the day of salvation. His sacrifice on the cross paid the penalty for your sin and opens the door for you to be with God forever and ever. That's what God really wants. But if you wait too long, only judgment and God's wrath awaits you. You will join the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan himself in the lake of fire. For us believers, as we study this awesome passage of scripture, what are we to do? What are the implications for you and me? To quote the, the late Chuck Colson, how now shall we leave? Well, we first should worship him. He redeemed us. We are declared righteous because of him. That's our justification. Jesus Christ rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into his kingdom. In him, we have the forgiveness of sin and eternal life. What else could we do except to worship him? Not only we worship him, we walked with him. Jesus calls on us to abide in him, to live in a close relationship with him and the Father and the Holy Spirit. His desire is for us to dwell with him now and forever. 
and to know him and love him more and more each day. That's what sanctification is all about. So we worship him, we walk with him, and then we work for him. Finally, we're to live for him. We're to use our spiritual gifts provided by him to expand the kingdom, his kingdom. We bear his name properly by living righteously before an unbelieving world. We act like we have believing loyalty. And we can do that. We can take care of business, kingdom business, while we wait for his return and our glorification. What say you? In today's lesson, we begin our study of Revelation chapter 20. And as we move towards the end of the book of Revelation, we encounter what it is one of the most hotly debated passages in all of the study of prophecy, the thousand-year reign of Christ or the millennium. So as we get started, let me share a couple of references that will give us some good context for our study of the passage. I want us to have a common baseline of understanding as we study this chapter of what do we mean by the millennium, the thousand years, and the different views available today and available for many years now uh, on this topic. So first, here's what we find in the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. Quote, millennium, biblical term, taken from the Latin word meaning a thousand, referring to the thousand year reign of Christ. The primary biblical context for the doctrine of the millennium is found in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, where the Greek word for a thousand is used five times. The idea of a thousand-year reign is also supported by passages such as Acts 3, 19 to 21, and 1 Corinthians 15, 23 to 26, which speak of a future restoration and reign of Christ. This doctrine, however, is explicitly taught only in the book of Revelation, resulting in differences of interpretation as well as considerable uncertainty about its importance. End quote. And again, that's uh, in the, Bi- the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, is uh, a topic called Millennium by Walter A. Elwell and Barry J. Batesel. Here's what we find then in the Lexham Bible Dictionary. Quote, Revelation 20, 1-6 is the only passage that mentions a time period of 1,000 years. It presents an era when Satan is heavily restricted and unable to mislead the nations. Verses 1-3. At this time, God will also resurrect the saints to reign with Christ. Verses 4-6. The millennium seems to occur before the creation of a new heavens and new earth. Revelation 21, 1-2 This time period displays God's victorious reign over evil and the fulfillment of his promises to his people. Various views on the nature of the millennium exist. End quote. And again, that's an article called Millennialism uh, in the Alexan Bible Dictionary and is by Abner Chow. As you can see from these two sources, there are multiple views on the millennium. In his book, Because the Time is Near, Dr. John MacArthur gives us a summary of the three major views. So let's look at them. First, post-millennialism. In this view, Through Christian influence, society will continue to improve until it reaches a utopian-like state. Thus, it is believers who will bring in the millennial kingdom. Christ will return after this general period of peace and prosperity has been established. So that is post-millennialism. The second view, a-millennialism, it has the prefix which means no millennial, no millennium kingdom. In this view, the amillennialism view, 
the millennial kingdom is not a future thousand-year kingdom on earth. Rather, it is a spiritual kingdom that refers to Christ's rule in the hearts of his people during the church age. Some millennialists believe the millennial kingdom is a literal kingdom in heaven where Christ's saints rule with him. But the amillennialists reject the notion of a future physical kingdom on earth. The third view, pre-millennialism, pre-thousand years, pre-thousand year reign. In this view, the millennial kingdom refers to a future physical kingdom that Christ will establish at his return. The kingdom, which will be centered in Jerusalem, will last for 1,000 years, after which this world will be destroyed and replaced by the new earth. This view is the most natural way to understand Revelation 20 through 22, chapters 20 to 22. And again, that's the views summarized by Dr. MacArthur in his book, Because the Time is Near. So there you have it. There are multiple views on this concept of the millennium, because as you read the passage, there are multiple ways to interpret what it could mean. And I have a spoiler alert for you. We won't arrive to a single unified view in this lesson. Why? Well, we have not been able to agree on the subject in over 2,000 years of Christendom. The church fathers were split on these views. For example, Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and Tertullian all held premillennial viewpoints, the third view. But then you had others like Origen and Augustine that had amillennial or postmillennial views. Later, these, these two, Origen and Augustine, were joined by men like Aquinas and the reformers Luther and Calvin. So there is divergence there in views as well. So what are we going to do with this chapter? Well, what we always do in this Bible study ministry, we'll work our way through the passage. We'll see what scripture has to say, and then we will find ways to apply that knowledge. We will look at what honest Bible scholars and teachers have to say about the subject. We won't answer every question, and we won't agree on every point. And guess what? That's okay. The church fathers, the reformers, and past and present well-meaning Bible scholars hold different views on the millennium. That means that we are in good company when we have different views on this subject. We can still be friends. We can still be in church together. Also from his book, Because the Time is Near, Dr. John MacArthur gives us a great introduction to this chapter. He says, quote, The millennial kingdom is called by many names in Scripture. In Matthew 19, 28, Jesus calls it the regeneration. Acts 3, 19 describes the kingdom as times of refreshing, while verse 21, 21 of that chapter calls it the period of restoration of all things. The Apostle Paul refers to it in Ephesians 1, 10, as an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. The Bible's teaching on the kingdom is not confined to the New Testament. The kingdom is an important theme throughout Scripture. It's the goal toward which all of redemptive history progresses. End quote. Regardless of the different views on the millennium, we all have a common longing for peace and utopia. In his book, Escape the Coming Night, Dr. David Jeremiah comments on this universal desire for peace and prosperity before we get into our lesson today. He says, quote, From time immemorial, man has looked for peace. He has joined peace movements, marched for peace, given prizes for peace, and gone to war for peace. 
When I hear of someone being arrested for disturbing the peace, I wonder where he found any. Although people long for it, pray for it, fight and die for it, the golden age never seems to come. Someday, however, during the thousand-year kingdom on earth, Christ will reign and with his followers will rule an earth restored from the ravages of the tribulation. End quote. Here is our lesson outline and goal for our teaching from Revelation 20. Again, we are lesson number 41, the thousand years, part one. Today, we will focus on verses one through six, the glorious thousand year reign. Then in part two, we will look at the global final battle, verses seven through 10. And in part three of this teaching, we will look at the great white throne judgment, verses 11 through 15. My goal for the teaching from Revelation chapter 20 is this, to encourage believers to remember that Christ will establish his kingdom and his people will reign with him forever and ever. Again, the goal for the teaching from Revelation 20 is this, to encourage believers to remember that Christ will establish his kingdom and his people will reign with him forever and ever. Let's get started. Let's go to our first division from Revelation 20, the glorious thousand-year reign. Revelation 20, 1 through 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he took hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their foreheads and on their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Revelation 20, 1 through 6. In verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 20, John saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the abyss or the pit and a great chain. This angel took a hold of Satan and bound him for a thousand years. These verses should take us back to Revelation chapter 9 and our lesson, Woe, woe, the horse of hell unleash on earth. Listen to Revelation 9 verses 1 and 2. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. And the key to the shaft of the abyss was given to him. He opened the shaft of the abyss, and smoke ascended out of the shaft like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened from the smoke of the shaft. Revelation 9, 1 and 2. In our lesson on Revelation 9, we learn the identity of this star. It is clear from verse 1 of chapter 9 that this is not an astral object, meaning a meteor or an asteroid, but a spiritual being that has come down from heaven to earth. We know that because of the use of the pronoun him. Now, the phrase fallen to earth might indicate that this spiritual being is a fallen angel or a demon, but that is not necessarily true, however, as we learn 
in our lesson on chapter 9. Based on his actions, the actions of this angel, it is clear that he is in the service of Almighty God and the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation 9, his actions were to unleash an army of demonic locusts from the pit at the sound of the fifth trumpet with the intention that they would torment the inhabitants of the earth. Remember also who currently holds the keys of death and Hades, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, Revelation 1, 17 and 18. This angel is acting under the authority of the Lord. And what we see here in Revelation 20 is that this angel takes hold of Satan to bind him for 1,000 years in the abyss, the pit, the same place referenced in Revelation 9, verse 1. And as a reminder from that lesson, here's what we know about the abyss. Quote, in the Bible and in Jewish theology, the abyss is often a metaphorical reference to the place of evil spirits. In Revelation, a number of times we see the abyss as a place of confinement for evil spirits. Revelation 9, 1 to 3, Revelation 9, verse 11, Revelation 11, verse 7, and then Revelation 20, 1 to 3. In all of these instances, the abyss is a place for the containment of evil spirits. Many Bible scholars believe that this is the same place referred to in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, as hell, where some evil spirits are in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. The word hell here is a translation of the Greek Tartarus, which can be thought of as the deepest pit or the lowest part of Hades. End quote. And again, that comes from the great site gotquestions.org. Back to Revelation 20, in verse 3, we see that this angel threw Satan into the abyss or the pit and shot it and sealed it over him. The devil, the leader of the evil spirits, is put in this maximum security prison designed for evil spirits and he's going to be there for a thousand years. So why does he go to jail now? Well, we're told that this was done to prevent him from deceiving the nations. This should take us back to our lesson on Revelation 13, the unholy trinity. We learn there that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. He is the great deceiver of the whole world. Listen to the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature, because he is a liar and the father of lies. John chapter 8, verse 44. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. 2 Corinthians 11, 14-15 And then, in Revelation 12, verse 9, we read, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of all who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Satan is the great deceiver of the world. And in order to keep him from doing what he does, the devil will be in the pit for a thousand years. It's like Satan will be put in the penalty box. Those of you who know the sport of hockey, that's what happens. Hockey is usually five on five. Somebody commits a penalty, what that player goes into the penalty box where a minute or two minutes and then the rest of the players keep playing with one team with the advantage five to four so you're that's what satan is he's in the penalty box and then he's going to be taken out of play for a definite period of time that's what we're told is a thousand years 
we're told that that's the, the length of that period. And then after that period ends, he will be released for a short time. So the obvious question, of course, is this. Why just take him out of play? Why not just eliminate him altogether? And when does this binding and imprisonment of Satan occur? Well, let's talk about that by asking some questions. First, if you look at the order in which Revelation is presented, which doesn't mean it's presented in a chronological order, it's just that's the way the chapters, the content is organized. We just finished looking at Revelation 19, and Revelation 19 closes with this word. Look at Revelation 19, verse 20. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Revelation 19, verse 20, we're told that the Antichrist and his false prophet, prophet are the first occupants of the lake of fire. What is this place, the lake of fire? Let's see what we can learn from the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. Quote, It is the final abode of Satan, his servants, and unrepentant human beings. This place is mentioned only in Revelation, chapter 19, verse 20, chapter 20, verses 10, 14, and 15, chapter 21, verse 8. But its terrible nature is abundantly clear. It is described as a lake of fire or lake of burning sulfur into which are cast, number one, the beast and his false prophet after the lamb defeats them, number two, Satan after his last rebellion, number three, death and Hades, and number four, all whose names are not found in the book of life. It is called the second death, for it is the ultimate separation from God beyond the resurrection and final judgment. End quote. And again, that's in the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, The Lake of Fire by Walter A. Elwell and Barry J. Batesall. As you can see, Satan does not arrive at the Lake of Fire until after his last rebellion. He's going to be kept in prison for 1,000 years. So, why the difference between him and his two top lieutenants? And here is a follow-up question. Are people being deceived by Satan now all over the world? I think the honest answer is yes. People are still following after the evil system of Babylon every day, and every day they are rejecting God. Terrible, evil acts are being committed every day by the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. So I don't think Satan is bound or restricted anywhere at the moment. He still has influence. He's still in play. However, I do believe Jesus overcame Satan at the cross. And because of that, Christ has been exalted and has all authority. Matthew 28, 18-20, Philippians 2, 9-11. With the authority of Christ, his people, the church can be on the offensive to expand Christ's kingdom by the preaching of the gospel. But we are still in a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. We are living in that already, but not yet, tension of the kingdom. We are living between the inauguration of the kingdom of God at Christ's first coming, Matthew 4, 12 through 17, and the consummation at his second coming. Revelation 11, 17 through 18. This is a good place to introduce a very interesting perspective. As we studied Revelation 19 last time, we heard from Dr. Michael Heiser uh, in his Naked Bible podcast. In his view, John is referencing the Gog and Mago War of Ezekiel 38 and 39 in Revelation 16 and 19, thus uh, equating it with the final battle of Armageddon. 
Based on that logic, the reference to Gog and Magog here in Revelation 20 verses 7 through 10 also refers to the battle of Armageddon. So when you think about it that way, this is not another battle, but a recapitulation of the events of Revelation 16 and Revelation 19. Based on that logic, and just follow that, right? Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38-39, references to Armageddon in Revelation 16, 19, and then 20. So based on that, let's hear what Dr. Heiser has to say regarding this issue of Satan being bound so he cannot deceive the nations. Quote, verse 3, he is put into the pit so that he might not deceive the nations. The Greek lemma translated deceive here is planeo, okay? Bidag, which is a standard Greek lexicon for New Testament literature, has the lemma's primary meaning as, quote, leading astray in a specific way, end quote. It means Satan, when he is permitted by God to do so, he moves the status quo, spiritual conflict, to a new level. He initiates, he launches a direct assault on God's throne, God's plan, God's city, and God's people. Specifically, it is related to Armageddon. Specifically, it is related to marshalling all the forces of human and cosmic evil against Mount Zion. End quote. And again, that's Dr. Michael Heiser on his Naked Bible podcast, episode 393 on Revelation 20. So what he's saying is this, Satan is still in play. He's still waging a spiritual war. What he's being prevented from doing is deceiving the nations, uh, leading the, the nations to launch a final assault on Jerusalem, on Mount Zion, against God and his kingdom. That's, and then that happens at Armageddon, is the final conflict, the final battle. So keep that in mind as an interesting perspective, an alternative way of looking at this idea of Satan being deceived, being restricted, being put in prison. Because this will inform an alternative option of how we can interpret the thousand year reign of Christ. So put that in your back pocket, pause for a moment if you need to think about it, but just keep that in mind as we continue moving forward with our study of Revelation chapter 20. In verse 4, we see that Satan is put in the penalty box. So what happens next? John then saw thrones and people sat on them and they were given authority to rule, that is to judge. And the words thrones and authority should take us to explicit divine council scenes and references. This is something we cover extensively in our lessons on Revelation 4, before the throne of God above, and also in Revelation 5, the victorious Lamb of God. I would encourage you to listen to those episodes again as a matter of review. For now, let's look for example at the book of Daniel in chapter 7. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, his garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire. Daniel 7 verse 9. And as we have learned, Revelation 4 is also a divine council scene, beginning in verse 3. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Revelation 4, 3-4. Here's another question. Who is sitting on these thrones? We're told that John saw the souls of the martyrs who had lost their lives because of their faithfulness to Jesus and to the Word of God. These are the ones who followed the Lamb even during the worst days of the tribulation. These are the tribulation martyrs, as we met them in Revelation 6, verse 9. These had not worshipped the beast or his image 
and they had not taken his mark. They exhibited believing loyalty to Christ until the end. So what is their reward? We're told that they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So let's unpack these aspects of their rewards first came to life and then we will look at reign with Christ. So again, first, coming to life implies resurrection from the dead. What is John speaking of when he uses the term here, resurrection? Here's what we find in the Lexham Bible Dictionary on resurrection. It's from the Latin resurrectio, we meaning rising again. A return to life after having died mainly refers to the resurrection of Christ, the central event of the Christian faith. Also refers to the Christian doctrine of corporate resurrection, which is connected to the judgment of both the living and the dead. End quote. And that's J. Lanier Burns in a topic resurrection found in the Lexham Bible Dictionary. The biblical doctrine of the bodily resurrection of believers is explicit through the New Testament. Because Christ has been risen from the dead and lives forevermore, we will also rise to life with him. Look at his own words in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 37. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I certainly will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of everything that he has given me, I will lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. John chapter 14, verse 19. After a little while, the world no longer is going to see me, but you are going to see me, because I live, you also will live. John fourteen nineteen. We continue. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 50. Now I say this, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 52. Then 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself, beginning in verse 16, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. So I believe when we're talking about the corporate resurrection of believers, of God's holy ones, of his saints, it includes the Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints, and the tribulation saints. In his book, Because the Time is Near, Dr. John MacArthur comments on John's use of the term, the first resurrection. He says, quote, John calls the resurrection of the saints from all ages the first resurrection. That resurrection is also called in scripture the resurrection of the righteous, Luke 14, 14, Acts 24, 15. The resurrection of life, John 5, 29. The resurrection of those who are Christ at his coming, 1 Corinthians 15, 23. And the better resurrection, Hebrews eleven thirty-five. End quote. What about this second phrase, reign with Christ? That means all the promises to rule with Christ will be fulfilled for them. Look at Revelation 1, beginning in verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and releases us from our sins by his blood. And he made us into a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 1, 5, 6. Look at Revelation 2. This is from our uh, series on the letters to the seven churches, letters to overcomers. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 26. 
the one who overcomes and the one who keeps my deeds until the end. I will give him authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are shattered, as I also have received authority from my father. Revelation 2, 26 and 27. We continue. What about Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 20? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. The one who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. Revelation 3, 20 and 21. Revelation 5, beginning in verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take this scroll and to break its seals, for you were slaughtered, and you purchased people for God with your blood from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have made them into a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. Then Revelation 22, verse 5. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a, of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illuminate them, and they will reign forever and ever. So now you might be thinking, if this is a literal thousand-year kingdom, are only the tribulation saints reigning with Christ? What about the church? Well, if you take the premillennial view that indicates that there will be a pre-tribulation rapture, then the church is already in heaven, symbolized by the 24 elders. And if you don't take that view, then the church is on earth during the tribulation days, but the outcome is the same. Christ's people, his holy ones, his saints, will get to reign with him. And that is really the bottom line. That's what matters. In verse 5, we're told again that these who will reign with Christ for a thousand years came to life. We're also told something else in this verse. This is considered the first resurrection. We're also told that the rest of the dead would not come to life until after the thousand years were completed. This implies an order of events that at least indicates that there is at least a second resurrection. So who is in this second group? Who are these rest of the dead? We begin to get an answer in the book of the prophet Daniel. Look at Daniel chapter 12 in verse 1. Now at that time Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2. So Daniel 12, that, that time of distress that has never occurred, that's the great tribulation. It says in verse 2 that many who sleep in the dust of the ground will, will awake after the people who are going the tribulation are delivered, are rescued. Then it says that a group will rise to everlasting life and another group will rise but to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So there is two resurrections implied there. So then there are two groups of people who will awake or rise at the end of the tribulation. One group will rise to everlasting life. That's consistent with a group that will reign with Christ. Believers, his people, his saints, his holy ones. The second group will rise to everlasting contempt. That's unbelievers, that's unrepentant sinners. Those who have rejected Christ. Those who have rejected the gospel. You do not want to be in that group. Trust me. Jesus himself spoke of these two groups as well. Look at John chapter 5, beginning in verse 28. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the bad deeds to a resurrection of judgment. John chapter 5, 28 and 29. In verse 6, John indicates that blessed and holy is the person who takes part in this first resurrection because the second death has no power over him. This means 
we're talking about a bodily transforming resurrection for all believers in Christ. They will live forever and ever with him. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 15, 53 and 54. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our lowly condition into conformity with his glorious body by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. All of those who are part of this first resurrection will be priests of God and Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And what kind of kingdom are we talking about? It's a kingdom where all the promises of God to Israel will be fulfilled. It's a promises that God has made to his people will be accomplished. It will be a prosperous kingdom. It will be a peaceful kingdom. And it will be a permanent kingdom. What I want to do now is just share with you just a few of the examples that we find in the Old Testament about the nature of God's kingdom. Listen first to Isaiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go up from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will mediate for many peoples. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not lift up a sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Isaiah chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. Look at Isaiah chapter 11 beginning in verse 6. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fattened steer will be together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. Here we hear more encouragement. First, Daniel 2, verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Daniel 2, 44. About Hosea chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. And it will come about on that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine and to the oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Hosea 2, 21 to 23. Did you get the sense of the nature of the kingdom? Uh, how about the prophet Micah, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1? And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as a chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come and let's go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob so that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift a sword against nation and never again will they train for war. Micah chapter 4 verses 1 to 3 is basically the same message that 
uh, Isaiah has, again, is peaceful, is prosperous, is permanent, is God's kingdom. One more passage, Zechariah chapter 14, beginning in verse 8. And on that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. Verse 16. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that came against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of armies, and to celebrate the feast of booths. Zechariah 14, 8 and 9, and then verse 16. Sounds fantastic, right? Truly awesome. Now, this is one time you can use that word awesome. Now, while we may not fully understand the timing of the kingdom, we can be sure of one thing. This is where we all want to be at the end of days. There is no better option for you and me. What's the alternative option? For those who fail to participate in this first resurrection, they will be resurrected to experience the second death, the lake of fire, as we saw in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, and as we will see in part 3 of this lesson, Revelation 20, 14, and 15. They will be in the lake of fire after they experience God's final judgment. Now, back to where we started this lesson today. Are we talking about a literal thousand-year reign? Is it just the tribulation saints or also the church? Is it just for redeem Israel? Is it now or later? The answer is yes to all those questions. We know this is a promise to all of God's people. We know that as his people, we are promised eternal life and the privilege of reigning with him forever and ever. And if there is one thing I want you to take from this lesson today is that. That's the bottom line. That's all we need to know for sure. I will reign with him. You will reign with him. We will reign with him. That's his promise. That's what we're looking forward to. Our calling is to remain faithful, to remain loyal, to endure and persevere until the end. Well, that's the end of our first division from Revelation 20, the glorious thousand-year reign. What is our principle? The king's faithful servants will reign with him. The king's faithful servants will reign with him. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take this scroll and to break its seals, for you were slaughtered, and you purchased people for God with your blood from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have made them into a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. As a believer today, how are you maintaining your allegiance to Christ until that day when you will reign with him in his glorious kingdom? This concludes part one of our teaching from Revelation 20. Thank you for being here today. Next time, we will focus on part two of our study of this chapter, and we will look at verses 7 through 10, the global final battle. Until then, this is Jose Figueroa for In a Proof Workman, where we are rightly dividing the word of truth. May God richly bless you.